Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on the programme on a dark evening here in the capital is Edwin Cox. Edwin is the global CEO at West One Music Group, one of the leading independent production, broadcast and film music houses in the world. Um, Edwin, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for inviting me on. It's a pleasure, Edwin. Um, thank you ever so much once again for taking the time to join us. Um, normally, no um, at this point in the uh, the programme, we tend to dive straight into the subject of leadership. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, let's start the conversation from that angle, because it has been such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourselves, as a production broadcast and film music house, um, to what extent has it actually affected your work? Um, yeah, so thank you. So, um, yeah, it's probably useful to give a little context on Westland Music uh, Group overall. And so we are, you know, relatively, I guess, small, small private company business, um, head office out of the UK and London. And we actually have um, 12 different offices around the world. So we've really been dealing with um, this COVID pandemic on a sort of global level as well. So mm. we have as I say, 12 different offices around the world. So we have uh, bases in Sydney and Australia. We have um, Los Angeles, New York, um, Poland. We have uh, Paris, uh, Munich. So we've really been dealing with this on a sort of global level as well. And we have um, a number of sort of individuals within the team that are stationed in all of these different places. So actually the biggest, one of the biggest hurdles has been that, I guess that combination of you know how we communicate and across those time zones, but also how we support all of the individuals that are in those different places who have different situations happening around COVID and their own sort of local restrictions and lockdowns. Mm. So I guess one of one of the biggest challenging pieces for us has been how we communicate and how we keep people informed about what our own internal policies are and how we can set policies that operate more broadly on a global level. So we've been trying to do things that create you know, certainty to people in their life as well, so they have some reassurance that you know, whatever else is going on in the world, at least they've got some kind of security within the workplace or mm. within you know, how, how they're operating their sort of day-to-day, day-to-day work. Um, so I think that that's kind of the main the main things, and we've we've tried to do certainly from my side as much communication as possible with the entire team on a global level. So you know that that can take the form of um, daily Teams calls. We've been using Teams quite a lot, which mm. is one of the other, which is the Microsoft solution. Um, uh, so we've been doing a lot of team calls um, globally, and also you know hosting different Zooms and calls as well and inviting people into those um, on a sort of regu- as regular basis as possible, really. 
I suppose being a fundamentally global organisation that when it came to the necessity to remotely work um, across the world during this uh, pandemic, you were quite well suited for that transition then. Yeah, so from um, you know from a day to day operational standpoint, it, it, it isn't too drastic for us. Um, the only piece of it that is a challenge is that obviously we're we're recording orchestral stuff, we're recording pop music, we're recording all kinds of stuff all the time. So actually, the biggest impact for us as a business, uh, has, you know, in terms of the lockdowns themselves, has been what what has happened to our client base, which is one a big part of it, and the other side of it is how we continue to create product um, because we are, you know, I guess we would, you would consider us a sort of manufacturer of music. We're producing music all the time. We're in studios where we have, you know, ordinarily we would have large groups of musicians together. And obviously under the, where we are today, we haven't been able to do that. So there's been a lot more um, of people producing in their own homes and doing smaller scale projects. So it's really kind of, I guess, from a musical standpoint, it's kind of, you know, it's limited what we could, what we can, what we're able to produce, um, and it has meant that we've had to do a lot, a lot of stuff more kind of smaller scale and more digitally. Um, but it hasn't impacted our output mm. overall. We still have done the same volume of product, uh, and in fact, we've increased our product output between last year and this year. So um, we've continued to invest and to plow into the product um, and it's just how we've recorded it that has changed mm. throughout this. And from this experience of adapting to this sort of new reality, would you say that you've actually learned anything in your capacity as a business leader during this time? Yeah, I think it just, I think it's just a constant reminder, I think communication, 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 it's a constant reminder that that's the most important thing. Um, and although you think you've communicated something once, I think it's just really important to continue to to reinforce the messages around you know business strategy, what the goals are for the business overall, what are we trying to treat, achieve in the short term and also in the long term as well. Um, and it's continuing to sort of provide that um, that information and that constant feed of um, awareness to to the rest of the team. And I think this just kind of reinforces that as well, that we really need to you know, continue to, to sort of lay out that path that we're following as a business, mm. and which allows the, the team to feel um, supported by it and to understand what, what, you know, where, we, where we're heading and what the objectives are. So I think I've sort of learned that, that you know, to keep reinforcing that, I think within myself is an important thing as well. Mm. Yes, leaders certainly during this period of time have had to really step up to the plate, haven't they, and keep people motivated, provide some real inspiration during this time and also reassurance that this is what we're going to do, this is the plan, things are going to be okay, just to try and calm maybe any lingering anxieties that may be there. As yeah, a result of absolutely. Exactly, the economic yeah, situation absolutely. or the threat to I mean, you, you switch on the news and it's just, yeah, you switch on the news mm. and you don't know which way you're going, do you? So, yeah, for for us, I think that's one thing, one of the biggest mm. biggest things that we've been trying to do better and constantly try and do better. Um, and and you know, through throughout the experience, we've also, as a senior management team, we've also been working on a project which is around you know resetting some foundations within the business as well. So looking at you know support looking for the team, looking at resourcing for the team. And making sure that we have all the right resource in the right places 
Mm. And so we've actually started doing some recruitment during this as well as a result of that work. So uh, we're bringing in some new people um, who will obviously be starting with us um, in in the sort of you know fully fully virtual world. Um, so that's going to be an interesting um, way of looking at it. Mm, that is certainly very interesting as well and it's something that could well be here to stay something that's come about during this lockdown period indulging in very much a fully virtual world and that being the way of things for working practices of course it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach and it won't be the case for every business but there are plenty out there that are really starting to uh, to embrace that um just going back to what we were discussing before edwin about how leaders have really had to be beacons of inspiration for their employees during this time and really sort of take everybody under their wing in a sense when you're the one sort of running the business and there isn't anybody sort of above you to refer to as such where is it that you tend to look to for your own source of inspiration as and when you need a little bit for yourself during a crisis uh so i think a lot of it i mean we do have a sort of core senior management team in the business um and then we have lots of sort of local teams that i'm quite sort of actively involved with um Mm. especially the u.s especially on the u.s side um so, you know, I, there, there's still a lot of support even for me as a leader within the business as well. So we have a senior management team, particularly through COVID, we've been meeting once a week where we talk through the sort of key key matters arising. And obviously we, we've been working together on this, what we've called Foundation 2020, which is our sort of project to, to make sure we're ready for the new future. Um, so, we, you know, we have been doing a lot of stuff together as a team, which feels quite supportive as well. And I think, you know, we've all obviously spent a lot of time together on screens, but um, probably more so than we would do normally because, you know, within the sort of normal work, everyone's often traveling and doing different things. Whereas throughout this, we've all been a little bit more kind of in the same place and available, I guess. And thinking about the uh, the future and what that might hold over the uh, the next few months, Edwin, now, just because I am conscious that we are starting to uh, run short of time, we know that yeah, it's sure. going to be quite a challenging time um, ahead. We have a tricky winter to, of course, uh, negotiate before we can even think about the long-term future. And even then, amid all the uncertainty, it is difficult to plan too far ahead, isn't it? Because um, the long term is no longer months and years. It's now days and weeks at best but if we do pretend we have sort of a crystal ball for a moment and look maybe one year ahead where ideally would you like West One Music Group to be a year from now and what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved by then within this landscape? Yeah so I think it's probably fair to just to talk about you know so the likes of Netflix for example which would be one of our sort of clients and I guess the barometer of what's happening in the media landscape that they're um, they actually throughout the lockdown period, they actually increased their subscription rate by 36% each month between March, March and July. So, um, you know, and the same is true for Spotify, which is slightly below that, but not too dissimilar numbers. Uh, and we've also had this shift of, um, we've had HBO Max launch during this period. Um, we've had Disney Plus launching in the UK and continuing to expand the business. So from a, from a content creation standpoint there's certainly an expanding market there um you know there has been a couple of sort of failings during this quibi quibi being one example which hasn't quite worked which was a short form video platform um 
but in terms of the big players, they've continued to expand their reach, and it is actually kind of it's sped up that progress from a linear TV world to a more digital world. Um, but what that what that means for business like us is there's much more content being created all of the time, and so the the, the future in terms of production and output for us continues to look quite solid as a foundation for the future. Um, so I think that, that on that side of it, it's quite positive. And we really, as I was saying, we've used this time, I think, quite effectively to to work on our business strategy, to work on what we call the foundations of the business, which is all of the key departments and the key, key operations and the key processes, and to make sure that they're well-resourced and ready for, you know, once we get back to some level of normality. So I think, we, you know, we've actually been using this time quite mm. well, I think, and as I say, sort of setting that foundation and being ready for, for the future, which is really a, a global, multi-platform digital space with ever-increasing content demands. Certainly seems as if there's plenty to be getting your teeth stuck into over the course of the year, the next few months, Edwin, uh, for sure. And I certainly wish you all the luck in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of doing well with those initiatives. And um, just before we do, um, of course, wrap things up, um, looking at the ongoing economic situation i imagine there are a lot of young people some of which may well be tuning into this podcast who may be downhearted by what covid19 has ultimately done to their employment prospects so as somebody who has sort of made a success of himself and is a business leader yourself edwin what message of encouragement would you give to those youngsters to really get them to pick up their heads look at the opportunities that are going to be out there and really embark on that road to success during this time yeah, I think I think you know it's, it, it is has been a challenging time, and as you say, there's no real awareness around when this is going to end. But but it will end, and and it is you know it is a moment in time, um, and it you know in some regards it's an opportunity to sort of take take a step back and and look at the future and to really assess what it is you know that someone would want to do as an individual, but also what you know we want to achieve as a business. So, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to sort of reset that foundation and have a look to the future. Um, but in terms of what's happening, as I say, I think, you know, what, what, what we've discovered throughout this is it's really sped up that process from a linear kind of analog world through to this global digital space, which, um, you know, really provides us an increased opportunity as well. So. You know, certainly in the media space, which is where we are, and we can see that um, this increase in content and this increase in the global nature of everything really provides mm. the opportunities, I think. I certainly think that the world is going to become far smaller as a result of COVID-19 because now that there is this sort of more full-scale transition toward remote working, businesses are now going even more global than they were before and that goes for recruitment as well as clientele as well so it's certainly going to be a very interesting time from that point of view and just given how many variables of course there are in how this ultimately is going to pan out Edwin I actually think given how insightful it's been welcoming you onto the show this afternoon that it would be great to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the program just so that we can discuss again what's changed in the months between our discussions and we can also just catch up on and I'd be very interested as well to gauge what's going on at West One as well and just seeing how um, sort of that vision that you outlined earlier is starting to really bear fruit yeah, thank you. That would be wonderful. Yeah.
we'd love to love to show you where we end up <laughs> and i really really do hope that there will be some positive news to share at that point in time as well um it would certainly um be a welcome dose of morale during this uh, quite trying period um for now edwin i have yeah, to say sure. i've really really enjoyed welcoming you onto the uh, the show and uh, do take care and stay safe with everything that's still going on until we do hopefully get to speak again sounds great thank you very much thanks for your time I'd also like to extend that message to all of the listeners tuning into the podcast today as well. Please do continue to stay well and look after yourselves and do be considerate of others as well because it does make such a difference in saving lives. Um, it was a pleasure for me to welcome Edwin Cox, Global CEO at West One Music Group, onto today's programme. Next up on the show today, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett, whose political exploits during his career saw him elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015. Um, Lord Blunkett's political career included holding a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership, as well as serving as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, all despite being blind from birth. I do hope that you all enjoy listening to the interview just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself. And that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, 
both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms 
about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary 
often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. 
you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. 
Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, There has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, What's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has 
Mr. Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.